Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I have a great guest, fellow college athlete and former owner of All-Star Driver Education, Brent Wall. In 2007, Brent bought All-Star Driver Education from his father because they had very different views on how to grow the business, and Brent was tired of working for the family business without having true ownership. Once Brent took the reins, he grew this small family business into a 13-state operation with accompanying software platform, which he ultimately sold in 2019 to a small private equity firm. In our conversation, Brent shares his family dynamics that led to him buying the business, how picking the wrong potential buyer for his business set his exit process back several months, and finally, how Brent determined how much money he needed to sell his company for to comfortably enter the next phase of his entrepreneurial career as a crypto and blockchain investor. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brent Wall. Brent, thank you for doing this today. I was uh, fired up. I, you and I chatted a little bit about the business. You sold it to a friend of mine. So I was excited to get you on the podcast. I really appreciate you know you making time. I know your story. I think it's really special how you bought a business from your family and grew it to a point where you know nobody really had the foresight of where it could go except for you and then was able to sell it and and it was not an easy sale process so i think a lot of people our fellow founders will get a lot out of this uh, conversation i appreciate your willingness to share it all absolutely thanks for having me excited yeah i think the one other thing is you know i have a rule like only one basketball guy is allowed on the podcast each week so when you decided to take this time slot i bumped mark cuban in like a wow. second so thanks for being wow here. wow <laughs> i'd like to really see those emails but uh if that really <laughs> happened that's great thank you so much i think a, a great place to start is just your your kind of personal background and what led you up to saying like hey i want to do the entrepreneurial thing Sure. Uh, so grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, went to undergrad for a business management degree. And I think maybe it was around and during that time. And I guess I should also, since you mentioned the basketball thing, I went to a university in Connecticut called Fairfield University, a small D1. was fortunate enough to get a scholarship there. And I think in being in that business school, I was kind of like, all right, well, what am I really into? I'm into marketing or accounting or management. And I said, oh, this business management thing, I like this, but I sure would like to own something, you know, manage folks and do it for myself. Uh, so, you know, got out of Fairfield and it's East Coast school. And so a lot of my friends went off to work in New York City and I figured I would follow and do the same and be with the big boys. And then my dad had started a, a driving school my senior year of college and that summer came home to regroup after graduating and my mom said oh just get driver's ed certified because you know your dad needs some in the car help and i'm like why would i do that i'm out of here you know i'm only staying for a month or two and i'm going back to new york to be a big business guy i got certified started uh, working the family business if you will and really started to fall in love with the passion of working with kids and teaching and business because my family is comes from multiple generations of educators both my parents mm -hmm. were uh, retired school teachers as well so i thought wow you know i really kind of like this so i think i'm going to hmm. 
go back to school and get my master's in education, do this driving school thing on the side. So I went back to Wayne State University, um, got a master's in education. And it was around that time that driver's ed stopped receiving funding from the state and then districts were no longer able to afford to offer it for free or even be competitive with private providers around. And so we actually took full advantage of that and started to really scale the business um, over time. But I know that you want me to talk about the family dynamics as well. Oh, that's, this, is, this is good. No, this is great. So, but I want to, I want to step back, right? So, you know, we're both college athletes, right? And you overlooked that. I think uh, a lot of people can kind of connect with that experience. And, and so you went to the NCAA tournament, right? Like this was oh, yeah. a, a, a fantastic opportunity. You got tell me, tell me about like, what was the best experience in, yeah. in college basketball for you? Yeah, for sure. You know, getting to the tournament, our junior year, uh, 1997, a little dating myself here, played against North Carolina, number one seed in the tournament. Vince Carter's team was one of the main players. That's awesome. And Jameson, yeah. And, you know, that was outside of having kids and getting married, that was probably the highlight of my life to be able to be in that big dance. Uh, even though we were a 16 seed, just experiencing that. Actually, I should say we were up by eight at halftime. Uh, so we were actually were one of those 16 seeds that was on the bubble potentially to upset it a one seed, but you know as it normally goes, we lost uh, by a few. That's uh, that is all right, right? I think uh, I think back of a lot of my kind of claims to quote fame is in high school, Tony Amante scored a hat trick on me. So. Yeah. I was, a, I was a goalie, right? Yeah. And, uh, and Bobby Orr came out to one of our practices and he scored on a breakaway on me, right? Wow. And then, uh, and then in college, one of the best games I played, Paul Correa scored twice on me. I think he took two shots. So all, <laughs> all of my like claims to fame are- But you were on the uh, ice with all these guys. That's, what, I, that's I was, our story, I was there. right? I was there. I was there. You're I was witnessing the greatness. I yes. love it. I love it. All right. So that's, that's great background, great context. You're working in the family business and now the business starts to grow. You want to make up your mind of like, where, where do you want to dedicate all of your efforts? Yeah. So maybe why don't you take it from there? Yeah, for sure. So I would say after I graduated from Wayne State, you know, the business was roughly three years old. I was putting in a lot of time uh, working the business along with going to grad school to the point where I really could tell I wanted to take this to the next level. Yet the pro big problem was my dad still owned 100% of the business. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tried working with my dad and I love him to death. He's the best ever. But working with your father is extremely difficult, especially when dad is kind of not really around the business and he's kind of letting you run the day to day but expecting you to report to him periodically and the periodic is kind of erratic based on how he feels that day. Mm -hmm. um, so that just really, really uh, created a big struggle between he and myself and the business. And so it got to the point where I saw an industry opportunity and I went to my mom. I said, look, I can't keep doing this. Like either I buy dad out or I actually love this industry so much. I might start my own driving school. And we were relatively small at the time. We only had four locations and Washington County. Um, and so my mom, you know, uh, via that conversation approached my dad and he said, absolutely not. I'm not selling this thing. You know, he's going to run it for me. And I said, well, <laughs> that's not how I feel. And I don't think I want to. And, um, 
it, it got pretty nasty uh, around 2006, 2007, to the point that my mom, you know, had a private conversation with him and said, look, you're going to lose your son over this. Is it that important for you to continue to say that you own this business, even though you're really not putting much time and effort into it? And he's successfully starting to get some track record with it or traction with it. So, I mean, I remember even a point as we worked on the sale process to we were sitting in an, an attorney's office and I was on this one chair and they were on this couch in the waiting room and we weren't even talking to each other. I mean, it, it was just it, it just sucked. It was horrible. But, you know, I'm happy to report that I got married that year. My daughter, his first grandchild was born honeymoon baby uh, shortly, well, not shortly thereafter, but nine months thereafter. And I think that kind of changed you know, perspective on life and realizing like, all right, although I was forced by my wife, Brent's mom to sell this business to him, which really pisses me off. Mm -hmm. I'm glad now that I have my grandchild, my son's married, happily married, you know, okay, life is more important than owning a business. That's great. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I think uh, too many of us uh, uh, entrepreneurs that grow up in entrepreneurial families, frankly, like face that, right? That that conflict. And we see a lot of businesses, frankly, where the kids don't, have no interest in the business. And so then what happens? It gets handed to somebody where you have literally no relationship and it's just a, a, a financial transaction. So for you to be able to finally figure, figure it out, work it out with family and, uh, you know, and know that family comes first, it sounds like you guys got there. So kudos to you for that. Um, so now can you talk to me about how you valued the business? It must've been like very difficult negotiations, sensitive conversations. How do you come to a number with a family member? Yeah, that was tough, right? Because this is now where my mom actually did take my dad's side and rightfully so, because she wanted to get the highest value along with him. But I, again, was very appreciative for her to put her neck out there to even make this happen. As far as how we created a value, you're right. That early stage, not having prior business experience or M&A experience, we used an accountant at the time who also didn't have any experience. And so we kind of just were like probably online, if online even existed in 2017, like searching, like, how do we evaluate this business? Long and short of it is, I think we did like five to seven times the net income, which is laughable now after going mm -hmm. through a, a real strategic purchase process with a, uh, a private equity group and an investment yep. banker. But that's how we did it. And honestly, I wanted so badly to own this business. I absolutely at that point in time overpaid by probably 200, 300%, if I would, yep. I would say. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to value businesses that are kind of small mom and pop, right? <laughs> mom and pop businesses. But you know what you wanted, you had the vision for what it could be. And, and I'm assuming you put some structure in place. It wasn't like, Hey, I just got married. I had a baby and here's all my money. Yeah. Yeah. Right? We, so uh, how, did, how did you do that? Yeah, no, that was one part that my parents were absolutely willing to work with me. I think they were more caught up on what is what is the actual number, how they receive that number. They were open to me not having to take out a loan. And so that was amazing. And I paid them off over multiple years to and so it made it more doable for me as well. And it, that part of it, I was very appreciative of. I think for a lot of people listening, what we might term that as is seller financing, right? Where the seller is basically giving you a loan and you are paying that off over time. 
Yeah, that's yep. great. That's great. Exactly. And the only reason I didn't go there with that term is because, yep. luckily, well, I guess it's seller financing with no interest is what that yep. would have been. It was great. Nice. Nice. All right. So, I mean, they, they got what they were looking for. You got what you were looking for. And so now you're off to the races. So that was when you bought the business, you joined in what, what, like, I, uh, two, 2000, 99, 99. And then, you know, I was distracted going to grad school and, uh, actually, uh, didn't share this, uh, earlier, but I had a little, st- when my dad and I were butting heads and I didn't yeah. think I was going to take ownership of this business, I yeah. shot off to LA to be a wannabe actor. Uh, I got my SAG card. And so that yeah. was like a nice fun nine month, uh, year long stint. Yeah. Um, so fast forward between graduating in 98 from Fairfield, going to Wayne state, graduating with the masters, going to LA, coming back. It was about Oh seven that we, you, you bought. Know, okay. Transition. All right. So now you're going to grow this business over the next 10, 12 years, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how did that go? Yeah. I mean, as, as any entrepreneur's journey, it's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of struggles, but a lot of, uh, wins also. Um, but again, going back to, the state stopping the funding, districts being unable to offer at a competitive rate or virtually free driver's ed, we started just attacking and going like gangbusters. We'd go to school districts, we would um, rent out classroom space, we'd provide our vehicle, we'd try to hire the district uh, teachers that once ran the district run programs. And that's what really allowed for our rapid uh, growth throughout on the brick and mortar side. And then as, you know, more capital and income was coming in from those efforts, we um, redeployed some of it to create our own learning management system and go after the online classes for both, you know, teens as well as adults with point reduction and so forth, insurance point reduction courses. And so we scaled the business out to about 13 states online. And I think we had brick and mortar seven or eight states uh, when I ended up selling in 2019. That's fantastic. So that's, that is real scale going from a few locations in a county to seven or eight states, like with physical locations, but then the software platform, right? It yeah. seems like you you identified, hey, there's a shift in this industry that's really going to benefit these private companies. And then you're leveraging essentially like an ed tech platform, right? To bring in more customers using technology probably something or almost definitely something that would not have happened, right? If you didn't own the business and be able to make all those decisions. Absolutely. And I think what also allowed for me to get a higher offer, you know, through the private equity group that we ended up selling to was just that creating our own internal software systems, our learning management platform, our registration platform versus using a third party and paying, you know, a subscription fee per month um, that absolutely helped the valuation. Oh, that's great. Let, can, I, can I dig into that a little bit? Because we see a lot of clients that will start out building their their software offering on someone else's platform, right? And then it reaches, call it 10 million, 10 million of, uh, of revenue, maybe not that high on the recurring side, but uh, they get to a point where it's like, oh, it doesn't have all the features or the UI is not quite what the customer is looking for. And they have to make this decision. Do we reinvest and build our own platform or do we sell it at that point? Mm-hmm. And we see a lot of that. I think it's it's a very much a personal decision. And we know that if you own your own platform and that platform is compatible with the buyer, 
then you're going to get a premium for that platform, right? It's, it's homegrown. You have full control over it. You can iterate on it. It's proven as opposed to building on someone else's technology where the buyer to scale will likely have to replatform and invest in that. So can you maybe say a little bit more about that, that you had your own platform and, and was it every buyer or just a few buyers? How did they view that and value that differently in your mind than if you built on, on a platform? Of somebody that somebody else owned. Yeah, sure. I, th I think for us, it was huge. Actually, I know through an acquisition that the private equity group has made since that company was, you know, received as a much lower valuation just because they were using a third party. And I think in our industry, the way our investment banker kind of dressed this up for the private equities that came in and showed interest was, hey, this company is scalable across the country because they have their own built-in proprietary systems. You don't have to rely on a third party to scale it out. It's already right there. You own all the technology, all the data, you know, the programmers, blah, blah, blah. So there was huge interest by every single private equity group in the fact that we had our own internally. That's fantastic. So this is, this is 12 years later from when you bought the business. You're in a point, eight, eight states, then and 13 with the software. Uh, what drives you to sell the business? How do you make that decision? So, I, you know, for me, and I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen because I'm, you know, very appreciative of the private equity group that bought it. But, you know, for me, it was, okay, what's this business going to look like? What's this industry going to look like in 10 years from now? With autonomous vehicles coming, I was seeing a lot of teenagers. I didn't have one at the time. I do now, and I'm living it personally, where they sit in their room all day and they communicate on their phones to their friends. So they're not motivated like you and I were to get to the mall on the weekends or go to the movie theaters and whatnot. And I said, hey, we're not here today and we may never get here, but like technology is moving so rapidly, so quickly that are these teenagers going to be really motivated to go get their license and get out of their room and our vehicle is going to drive themselves? maybe we don't get there. But I was just like, you know what, if I can shop this around and get a valuation, a number that I can get out and feel comfortable that I can live the rest of my life and, and do other things that I'm passionate about, then I'm willing to entertain process. And so that's great. So you, you mean, you're really folk there, there are external factors that you were really paying attention to because you bought the business right at a time where states are not getting the funding that they used to. And so you're seeing a shift in the market and then you're projecting out, hey, there could be new risk entering this market. We see it quite a bit, even you know, with, with interns that work here that are much younger, right? They're, they don't own a car. They may not have their license, right? It is, it's a definitely a different generation. All right, so I get it. There's some good rationale and it's about, can you get your number? Before we go into you shopping the business, how did you identify that number, right? You said live comfortably for the rest of your life. How do you, how do you figure out what that is? Yeah, so um, definitely put a lot of time and effort along with the, the financial planner manager that you know, I use for my stock trading and, and mutual funds and so forth. Going through various scenarios like, okay, here's what I already have invested. Here's what the potential deal structure could look like if this actually closes. Does that, when you combine it all together, give me enough to live off the interest if I was to hand him or them the entire, you know, portfolio, which I just can't because I'm a, a serial entrepreneur, right? But yeah. 
it gave me a peace of mind to say, okay, now I know that with, you know, conservative level of interest, spending, living, so forth, I, can, I could probably get away with living the rest of my life, you know, without hopefully having to get another job, if you will. That's uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that because what we try to do now, and this is a, a, a maybe a shift in the last call a year for us, is we bring in those private wealth managers to our clients to try to figure out what are the goals for the rest of your life? Are you going to start a business? Are you going to buy a business? Are you going to put your kids through college? Do you want a second home? How do you want to live kind of that next chapter? And we don't want to sell your business if you can't hit that number. So figuring out what your number is, it's a very personal thing. And we actually put most people, most of our clients through wealth manager assessments from two different angles. We take a bulge bracket and we'll take an independent. And they usually come up with very similar numbers, but it, it does a couple of things, right? It gets in your mind, okay, I know what I can say yes to, right? Because it's going to achieve my goals. And, and it aligns the investment banker that you ultimately are working with that, hey, I'm, I'm saying no if you can't get me you know, to, to X. Um, the other thing that I think we, we see, which I'm very proud of, is that when you when you get that information up front, you're kind of you're getting ready for that next chapter. And so your level of satisfaction after you sell your business really rises. It's the people that go in and they're like, yeah, I just want to sell my business and I'll take the most money I can get. They don't have a plan of what to do with it. Maybe it's enough, maybe it's not, but it's just the lack of planning leads to dissatisfaction in these M&A transactions. And historically, that's, that dissatisfaction is very high. So awesome that you, you know, took the time to plan out what that number is. Now you go out and you find an investment banker. And I know you, know, you had a friend tell you, hey, if you're going to shop your business, you really should find somebody to help you do that. Can you talk to me about that decision to uh, go with an investment banker and then how you how you selected them? Sure. <clears throat> so before going that investment banker route, I uh, was talking to a few other strategics in our space that I thought were capable of acquiring our company. Or actually, I was looking to say, all right, well, if you're not interested on that side, maybe I stay in this game and I acquire you. Um, but as we shared numbers and what we were both looking for, I realized that what they were willing to put on the table just wasn't, you know, a strong enough offer for me to consider getting out. And so you're right. I had lunch with a, a great friend that we both know, and he said, Hey, have you ever considered an investment banker? And I said, well, he's like, do you know what they do? And I'm like, I think so. But why don't you just tell me anyways? Right. You know, cause I was, I'm a, I'm a self-taught entrepreneur. I mean, yes, I went yeah. to undergrad you know, got a business management degree, but they don't teach you this stuff. And so he put me in touch with a few investment bankers in the Metro Detroit area. One in particular showed strong interest, seeing how he could, you know, really position us as like the driving school across the country that, and we were, we were one of the top five driving schools in the country, but he could position us with our learning management system, our platform, our technology, like, hey, you guys buy this school, you can roll up a bunch of other schools under their platform and really, really grow out this industry as like the dominant player. And so ended up, you know, going with them and um, just an, an amazing, you know, journey, frustrating uh, moments along the way, but I'll pause there. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, there's there's a bit to unpack there that I yeah, really I loved. To, well, I, what I love to hear um, is that you interviewed multiple investment bankers, right? And they all probably, you know, gave you their pitch 
And then they may have said, you're too small or you're too this, or we want you, but we don't have a plan. And then you land on one that really understands the business, not only from your perspective as the operator and how you're growing it, but how the buyer is going to want to view this business. They're buying your future cash flow, your growth, your future opportunity. And the guys that really understand your industry can paint that picture really well to buyers. So, you know, you and I have talked about this ahead of time. You know, frankly, you made a fantastic choice. Just to be clear, though, you didn't look outside of the Detroit market at all, right? You were just kind of, okay. And so, you know, we encourage people to really understand that investment banking, particularly in the lower middle market, it's just, it's not a local service. It's an industry expertise. And frankly, I think you got really lucky with the group that you chose. We've had other guests on the podcast that also worked with that investment bank and had great outcomes. So you couldn't go wrong. And I love how you said they really described that business for the buyer of how it could scale and how it could be worth so much more to them if they were to execute on a game plan. All right. So they decide, take you to market. Can you talk to me about that process, the time period it took? Was it distracting to build, continuing to build the business? Can you take me through that? Uh, uh, all the above. So let's see. So we actually ended up having to do this twice, uh, kind of. Uh, the first go around, did the management presentations with five different groups that we selected, got LOIs in place. And there was one that came in far higher than the others, probably 20% higher, but the individual hadn't really been in the ecosystem before they were younger. And my investment banker said, Hey, I know you said you really want to go down this path with that one. Realize you're going to lock the other ones out. We're going to get into an exclusive and they're going to do their due diligence and everything else. But I just don't have a really good feeling right now. I hope that we're at the table and we close and you can point your finger at me and say, I told you so. And I said, well, look, we have, we have to do this. It's like 20% higher than any of the other ones. Like, why would I not? He's like, I just don't have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm yeah. saying. I said, all right, well, here we go. So we locked down exclusive got, oh gosh, I think they dragged it out. We got to nine months, maybe like six months, I think, but we got to a point where we were three weeks from the closing date we had selected. I had already spent close to 50,000 in legal fees. I can't tell you the countless amount of hours of days, nights, weekends that we both, you know, uh, and along with the, their team and our team had to put in to get this to where it was. And then we had a short conversation on a, on a Friday late afternoon. And it was a couple of like little housekeeping items. And then out of nowhere, he just dropped the hammer and said, guys, I just don't think this is still worth what I originally put in the LOI. I think it's 15% lower. And thank goodness I had the investment banker because I probably would have cringed and given in because I didn't know any better. And mm-hmm. the investment banker took over. We hung up the phone. He said, you're not talking to him. We went cold for about a month or so. The investment banker tried to see if he could save the, the relationship and the acquisition deal, but it just didn't happen. So we had to go back to market. And again, t- to your question earlier, I mean, countless hours were lost and lots of money and time and distractions yeah. and everything else along the way. And, you know, very, very fortunate and, and lucky and all the above to have sold to who you and I both know as well. An amazing, amazing person yeah. and um, group that he's created with his uh, private equity. Uh, couldn't have been happier in, in the sale. 
I appreciate you sharing kind of the trials of this because one of the things that your investment banker, and it sounds like yours really had a good sense that this was going to be a problematic buyer, right? He warned you at the beginning. But what our fellow founders really need to look out for when they're interviewing and making the selection of their investment bank is that that bank needs to have relationships with your potential buyers because they know who's going to pull that, you know, trick at the end of of saying okay now i want to pay less they know who has the money and who doesn't right that is a big part of that representation for you to not let you get into those kind of situations now i understand you made that call right the, the carrot was dangled and it would have been very very difficult for anyone to say no to 20 percent higher and it sounded like from our past conversations that that you thought that that buyer had the money, but then maybe in the end, right, their capital was kind of falling through and that that was maybe the reason they wanted to pull back, not that they didn't value the business um, that way. But, you know, it's such a waste of time, right? You're trying to run a business, grow a business, make it more valuable. And like you said, nights and weekends away from family to try to get this done and then dollars with accounting and legal and banking. It is, is really not for the faint of heart. And sorry you had to go through that. But then somebody steps up, right, and is willing to understand the value. Somebody that, you know, obviously, like you said, we both know. And so I was so excited when you did sell to him um, because I think he's such a great steward of businesses, right? You're going to have legacy. That business is going to continue to grow, even though, like, we've hit some really challenging times, right, with COVID, mm-hmm. people not assembling and all of that. But I know he's is is very enthusiastic about continuing to grow the business. Is there anything else you would tell me? There's a lot of great kind of advice and learning from that experience. Anything else that you would share from selling the business that you'd want other people to know and learn from? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely tell anybody to consider an investment banker as part of the process. Yes, of course, they're going to take what they need to make it worth their while. And it may sound like a lot when you look at that number that they probably show you. But for me, it was, okay, investment banker, can you get me this range that I need to get? And if you take that, I don't really care. Because as long as you get me in the range that I need to be in, after yours and others, then I'm good. And so their ability to move the process forward, you know, make sure that everybody's playing nice in the sandbox uh, or not and kick out the bad actors, you know, just, just everything, you know, they, they put me in touch with the right accountant that has the experience that they have from an investment banker perspective, the right attorney to use so that we close the deal. And it's not someone, you know, watching every dot of an I and cross of a T that doesn't have the experience in closing deals. So all those aspects that you just don't think about if you're a first time entrepreneur that wants to sell, I'm telling you, you got to use professionals. And yes, it, it's, it's a sticker shock to know what their fees are. But as long as you get yours that you need and want, it, it's so, so worth it. Brent, that's fantastic. I, I got a riff on that because we talk to founders a lot. And as fellow founders, right, we're used to pinching pennies, right? We want that dollar to go just a little bit further. And so when we see the fees that come out of investment banking, it is shocking to us. But if we focus 
on the outcome, not the fees, right? You're just in a far better position. So you really want to be picking the group that is going to take you to the promised land and not worry about an extra $100,000, $200,000 because you're going to get that five times, 10 times back by making the right selection. Um, it's nice to hear that they're also bringing you accounting and legal. You know, that's what we do at ExitWise is really surround you with the M&A dream team. And we love to know when banker and lawyer have played well together before and they're on your team, you know, sometimes that, that they can be butting heads too, right? Your investment banker wants a deal done. Your lawyer wants to kind of dot that last I, cross that last T and protect you. That's their job. Um, so having a balance there and having the team really fu uh, functioning in a, in a you know, high functioning way is really a, a big benefit to, to the founders and, and frankly, getting deals done. Do you think you made any mistakes, right? Aside from maybe selecting the wrong buyer, but that's just that's just really tough, a tough call to make. Anything else that you did that you might change if you were had to do it over again? I mean, I put so much faith and trust in the investment banker that maybe things did go wrong and they did such a great job professionally of protecting me and so that I could focus on the day-to-day -day business and mm -hmm. making that continue to be successful month in and month out. Boy, I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes uh, over those years for sure. But when it comes to the process, I think with them taking the lead and me following along, you know, it, it was it was a really good process. I mean, one thing I would say, though, anybody that's thinking about selling their business, I mean, you really got to get your ducks in order, you know, when it comes to like all the behind the scenes paperwork for the due diligence process and everything else. I mean, all that stuff we were trying to just do on the fly as we were going through it. It would have been nice to, you know, maybe ramp that up a year or two prior so that everything was organized. I mean, no different than like an audit or whatever else, right? Sure. Like you want to be prepared ahead of time. But again, I, I didn't know any of that going into it and they helped hold my hand the whole way. That That's great advice. Uh, one of our last guests, and you, you'll you know the company he ran, his name's Andy Beal and he ran Max Preps, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And yeah, he talked about the value of his board of directors making him get prepared to be purchased, right? So that that diligence room, that data room was just so clean that a buyer comes in and they fully understand. And when a number is there, that number is accurate and they have no reason to question anything. And when you have that package, your business packaged that well, there's far more demand for it. And so you really lower the risk of a failed transaction and you increase maximizing your outcome. So yeah, that, that's fantastic advice. So let's go into overtime now, right? I got a few, few questions for you. So when you sold the business, who was your first call? Well, my wife was there. Actually, my first, well, I talked to my investment banker, like the second after everybody was on the call and you know yeah. the deal closed and the money was getting exchanged. Uh, called the new buyer, talked to him, started crying like a baby because, I mean, yeah. it was just a life-changing moment for me. I mean, it yeah. truly, truly was, you know, and uh, tearing up right now a little bit, actually, just <laughs> thinking about it some three years later. But, and then, you know, I eventually did call my parents, I think, that day as well. So, yeah, I guess it was all family-driven. I can't that, really think of anybody else that I talked that's to. Great. That. Oh, that's my great. My sister, maybe, as well, but, yeah. So, uh, how did you celebrate with your team, your family, like what was, what did you, what'd you end up doing? It's funny. My, my wife and I, you know, we, we live modestly and whatnot. Right. But, um, what is it? Bottle of Cristal. Is that the couple hundred dollar <laughs> bottle of uh, champagne? Right. I wouldn't uh, know. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Well, I didn't either. I was like, oh, I, I see people, maybe it's like on 
you know, music videos or something, you know. Um, yeah. But anyways, went and bought a bottle of it. It was like 200 something dollar bottle of champagne. And so we toasted and, you know, um, it's, and I'll tell anybody that hasn't had it yet. It's not really all that much better, <laughs> but that's just me. Um, yeah. And then uh, celebrated, you know, I mean, look, luckily, you know, I was able to pay off the house and we put on an addition and, I don't know. It's just, there's quite a peace of mind, you know, when you read about life and financial pains being one of the biggest up there to, to be able to remove that pain in life and you still have your other struggles. Right. But like, that's a huge one to remove. If you can, if you're in a position to do that. It was yeah. Huge. So well, so well said. I'm adding this question for you. So did your experience on the basketball court benefit you in building, selling? Like, how do you think that, that Absolutely. lifelong athlete athletic experience helped. Absolutely. And I think, I don't know your feeling and you don't need to share, but like mine, you know, when you hear of someone that's played team sports at, at a collegiate or even higher level, and not to take away from anybody that played, you know, competitively in high school or played an individual sport, there's just something there in the drive, the determination to push through adversity. I mean, look, I could have easily just shut down the process after that first um, phase went so horribly wrong, but because, I mean, it takes so much time and effort and demanding hours out of you to focus on your business, which is going to make you money at the end of the day. And if none of these buyers come to the table, you still got to run that business. So, um, but you know, you just push through it and you're like, Hey, I want this. I'm going to do anything and everything in my power to make sure this happens. And through the process, though, I'll prepare any of you first-time founders. It's you're you're doing you're working two jobs. There's no question about it. Even with a strong investment banking team behind you, I mean, the demand put on you, in addition to running the business, and actually the business had to be more successful month in and month out during that process, so that mm -hmm. the buyer doesn't walk away or they don't try to discount it. So you have these internal pressures every single month, but now once you go through that process, oh my gosh, it's it's demanding, but. I will say at the end to get that closing day is all worth it, all worth it. And then some awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I do want to share because I think you touched on something that is important to me and that, that, that team sport, really, you are going to battle with your brothers, right? And you've learned to trust them over time and you've got better together over time. And there's just so much that, that is unspoken to achieve a goal. And so when you have a company and you have employees and you have partners to have that kind of camaraderie and mission around a similar goal, I think athletics just brings a ton to, to business life. And, and it's the adversity, right? Yeah. You're gonna lose, you're gonna get knocked down and you just got to get back up. Right. And, and sports absolutely teaches you that. And anybody that's a successful entrepreneur that hasn't played sports, you guys are great too, but just. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So is there one person in your life who you'd like to thank that really contributed to your personal and professional success? Well, I, I gotta say my parents, my dad for creating all-star drivers ed. Cause obviously without that, I never would be here talking to you. Uh, and then my mom for, you know, stepping in as great mothers do to realize that family is far more important and to stick up for her kid over her husband, like <laughs> it's huge. And then, yeah, and then, you know, yeah. a shout out to, uh, the investment banker. Absolutely. Cause I've told him many, many times without you, you know, you changed my life. You really, really did. So.
All right, so Brent, what are you working on now, right? So many entrepreneurs, they sell a business, they can't sit still and they go do their next thing. Tell us, tell us about what you're working on. Well, a lot of people are going to think I'm pretty crazy if you didn't already, but I've been invested in cryptocurrency since 2015. So when I actually owned All-Star and fast forward, partner and I, my best friend, CIO partner created a crypto hedge fund, trading fund. And so we started that last year. We're doing pretty darn well out there looking for limited partner investors uh, as we trade coins, we're getting yield, we're staking coins, we're doing all sorts of different things and love the, love the industry. So call me crazy, but that's what we're doing. Who's your ideal limited partner, right? Because it's probably not someone that's just an angel investor. Is it somebody bigger than that, like a family office? Who do you really target? Yeah, so family offices, fund of funds. Uh, we're also looking for high net worth individual uh, investors. The minimum is, you know, up there with what they're accustomed to seeing, probably with mm -hmm. other investments. But yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't allow through the SEC, you know, regulations and laws that we're in to, to just take on anybody. And and your performance is really at the top, like five percent of all of these traders, hedge funds that are in this particular kind of crypto blockchain industry, right? Yeah, we're doing really, really well. Our attorney uh, has works with 450 different uh, funds. And he said, after giving him our, you know, performance to date since inception, we're right up there in the top 10%. So really, really excited about where we are and where we're looking to go. What do you think the difference is? Why, why are you guys that much better? I think... The position that we're taking is a long non-leverage position, and we're not going after the, um, I won't use this word, but the crap coins, if you will, out mm -hmm. there, or like the very, very, very speculative coins that many others are trying to go after to just either go crazy in a, a win strategy or in many of their cases right now, you know, lose miserably. And so we're just, I hate to say conservative with the word crypto, but I feel like we're probably the most conservative, you know, long non-leveraged fund out there. And so I think that's showing now through the FTX drama last quarter and everything else that's going on with needed regulation and crypto and so forth. We're, we're playing it safe, if you will, if there's such a thing in the crypto space. How's that? That's fantastic. All right. Brent, thank you for being here. This is fantastic. I love that you're off doing the next thing, right? Because entrepreneurship, it's a career path. A lot of us, we do this multiple times, right? And this is actually what, like number three for you, because you've sold other businesses that we didn't even touch on. So I'm sure whatever you're doing, is going to be successful. Well, thank you again, Todd. This was a lot of fun for me too. So appreciate right. you having me on. Thanks, Brent. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.